Thank you, Mike, very much. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you again. A um, couple of things before we get into looking at the scriptures. Um, for prayer, really, first of all, uh, you will be aware, and if you're not, I'm going to make you aware by what I'm about to say, that uh, there is a, an important trustees meeting on Tuesday this week. Uh, do pray for us as we meet. Um, I have the responsibility of being chair of the trustees, and so uh, some additional responsibilities lie on my shoulders, and I'd appreciate your prayer. But for all of us, as we make some important decisions about a lot of different things, not least of which... Uh, the project as we consider uh, what God is saying to us in all of that. So do join us in prayer for that. And then secondly, Andrew asked me just to say a word or two about Redcliffe College. You will be aware, at least uh, many of you will, I'm sure will be aware, that a, uh, an announcement was made a couple of weeks ago about the future of the college and some changes in direction and uh, lots of things that relate to that. Uh, I can't say a great deal more than you might have read in the press release, but in essence, um, the, uh, we are um, ceasing doing formal validated undergraduate training as of next year. So the sec current second years, uh, as they move into their third year, that will be the final year that we teach the validated program. We will be teaching a pre-field non-validated program called EQUIP, uh, and that's uh, something we've been running this year on the back of many years of experience with doing that kind of thing. But the validated program will cease um, from uh, effectively this year. We will teach the last year in the year coming. Um, alongside of that, we will continue to teach the Wycliffe Bible Translators training uh, and all of their courses. And we will continue with our MA courses, uh, which are hugely popular. We have... Um, uh, something like 120 students on the MA courses, but they are all taught in intensive mode. So the, um, they only come for either four long weekends a year or a three-week summer school in the year. So that led us, as we began to recognize that the undergraduate training program was rapidly disappearing, the whole of the Bible college sector actually is really struggling in undergraduate training program. There's much too much provision for it. Um, so more places than there are students. And so as we began to see that change in the way that the college was working, it became increasingly obvious that the lovely buildings that we have at Wooten House are not suitable for the future. And so the major decision that brought gasps from all of the students when we talked to them about this was that we are selling that site. So if you know that site... Some of you have actually studied in that uh, very building, uh, and many of you will have visited. Uh, it will be going on the market sometime in the next few months when we've been through a proper evaluation process, um, and we will sell it to uh, whoever happens to have the right amount of money, I guess. Um, but we don't know what the timing of that will be. Uh, we are planning to move into rented premises in the center of Gloucester. I can't tell you where that will be yet because it's not yet public, we're well on in the negotiations and have almost completed them, but until um, it is uh, signed and sealed, we're not saying anything about that. So as you might imagine, that all of that has created a lot of uncertainty in the college, not least amongst the current second years who are going into third year, because from an undergraduate perspective, they are Redcliffe next year. Um, and that's quite a small <coughs> cohort of a 10 or a dozen students. 
So there are lots of changes for them particularly, but for everyone. Staff are involved. We don't yet know whether any members of staff will be made redundant. It is possible that some will, but we're hoping not. But there's no guarantee of that. So there is a lot of uncertainty, and we would really value your prayers as we think about uh, the right next steps. This is something we've been thinking and talking about for quite some time, wondering what uh, we should be doing, because we could see the Bible college scene training, uh, 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 Bible college scene training, changing quite significantly um, and uh, it's actually happened a bit quicker than we thought <laughs> we were planning that we would be doing this in about five years time but things have moved very rapidly in the last couple of years so um, that's uh, something for you to pray about if you would um, at a personal level it's a very strange time because many of you will know that I'm due to retire from Redcliffe and from working or paid working life um, at the end of August this year and so it's a bit weird for me, uh, coming to the end of my working life after what will then be 21 years at Redcliffe, to see it moving on into a very different direction. Um, but uh, I know it's the right thing. I'm very at peace in my heart about it, and the staff have responded wonderfully and recognize that God is in it. But uh, it is quite a challenging time, so we would really value your prayers about that. Um, there are many more things I could say, but it isn't right for me to do that, either that I can't or... I mustn't take up the rest of the morning doing so, Um, but uh, do pray for us, and if you'd like to know any more, what I can tell you, I happily will, Um, but uh, that uh, may not be very much more than I've just said publicly, but um, anyway, uh, appreciate your prayers about that, that would be really, um, really good if you can pray with us about those things. So we come this morning (coughs) to the first of a series of four looking at the cross of Christ. It's a great series, especially as you lead up to Easter, and no doubt that was what was in the leaders' minds when they were thinking about it. The four titles of the uh, series are, this morning, the centrality of the cross, asking the question, why did Jesus die, and who killed Jesus? There was a line in that last hymn, I don't know whether you noticed it, it was my sin that held him there. You might want to remember that. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Why did Jesus die? Who killed Jesus? Then we're looking next week with Andrew at the heart of the cross. Then Ivor Cooper at the achievement of the cross. And Roger looking at living as a community of the cross. Great series, great titles. Um, Taken, I think, I'm looking at Andrew, uh, from this book. This is quite an old edition of The Cross of Christ by John Stott. I'm sure there are more up-to-date covers but the inside will be the same. It's a great book um, that really explores the depth and the meaning of all that the cross of Christ means uh, for Christian people, for the world in which we live. But, uh, and so I'm going to quote one or two things from there this morning. You won't be surprised to know, and I suspect maybe other preachers might as well. Right at the beginning of his book, in the preface, before he ever gets to talk about the reason Uh, for the title, The Cross of Christ, he writes this, The cross transforms everything. It gives us a new worshipping relationship to God, a new and balanced understanding of ourselves, a new incentive to give ourselves to mission, a new love for our enemies, and a new courage to face the perplexities of suffering. The cross transforms everything. You could almost stop there. 
Because that says it all. The cross transforms everything. Um, quite some years ago, we had a, a, a couple, a married couple uh, of students in the college, and she was a great um, kind of poet and writer. And uh, she wrote something once, which uh, I made sure I got a copy of. And I'm not going to read it all to you this morning, because it runs to a couple of pages. But towards the end of this little um, poem, speaking about Jesus, she writes this, The people look for him to lead a rebellion. After all, he is the Messiah. But what does he do? He humbles himself, even to death on a cross. And how does he die? He lays down his life for the vulnerable, not the perfect. He breaks the rules, even the rule of death, using it against itself to give us life. Are you looking for him in the cemetery? After all, he did die. But where is he? I'll tell you. He's here, walking around, changing everything. The cross transforms everything. All that Jesus did for us transforms everything. Paul said something quite similar when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. We've celebrated communion this morning. We have sung about the cross. We remember the cross. It transforms everything. And if the cross doesn't transform everything, it transforms nothing. It transforms everything. Of course, all religions and ideologies have had symbols down the years that have uh, kind of expressed something about their beliefs. The Buddhists have the lotus flower. Judaism has a star of David. Islam has a crescent. Marxist ideology has a hammer and sickle. The Nazis had the swastika, which incidentally I discovered when I was preparing for this morning, is apparently over 6,000 years old, the swastika. They adopted it for themselves, but it wasn't new. Sadly, still used today by some groups who have similar leanings. But the Christian has the cross. The Christian faith has the cross. Not early on, of course, because uh, persecution meant they were somewhat afraid of expressing themselves via the cross. And so they used the sign of the fish, which in Greek was ichthys, and the letters of which spelt Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. And that was the symbol they used early on to be known by. And then other symbols were thought about. But ultimately the cross was chosen. This symbol of an upright and a horizontal beam. The cross. Again, John Stott, he says, They wish to commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus neither his birth nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign, nor the gift of the Spirit, but his death, his crucifixion. Why was that, I wonder? Why was it? Well, if you'd like to turn into Mark's Gospel, 
We're just going to read a few verses from a few passages in Mark's Gospel as we think about the perspective that Jesus had about the cross and how central it was to who Jesus was and his life and his ministry and what he understood God had in mind for him. I hope you've uh, got nimble fingers this morning because we're going to look at a few verses of Scripture as we go along. But we're going to start with Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. Just a couple of verses here. (coughs) He, that is Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter thought, that can't be right. Jesus said, you're just thinking like a human being. Chapter 9 of Mark, so the very next chapter, verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Again and again, three times in fairly rapid succession, Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is my mission. What lies ahead of me is what I came for. I must suffer. I must be killed. There was no doubt in Jesus' mind that this was the heart of what he was about. The teaching was amazing. The healing was extraordinary. But in Jesus' heart and mind, he knew that ultimately it was all about the cross. Where he was heading. He must be killed. He must suffer. The cross was everything to Jesus. Turn into Luke's Gospel, if you would, for a slightly different take, albeit the same thoughts. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Luke 18 and verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told him, told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. 
hard for them to understand. And I don't know whether you noticed that one of the key differences between this verse in Luke and the verses uh, that we read in Mark is that Jesus in this, on this occasion is recorded as saying, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. So it's not just that Jesus has it in his head that this is what he's going to do, but actually he understands that is coming from what the prophets said. So that gives us a little bit of a perspective, not just from Jesus' angle, but from God the Father's angle as well. Maybe we can turn back into the Old Testament, into Isaiah, please. Just one verse in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and verse 10. So this is from the Father's perspective. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. This whole chapter is about the suffering of Jesus. And verse 10 tells us it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God the Father's perspective was that the cross was central. It was all about. Turn into Acts, if you would, for further evidence. I did tell you your fingers need to be nimble this morning. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter preaching. The first sermon after the resurrection of Jesus at Pentecost. Mike reminded me and you that I have the same Holy Spirit living in me and you have the same Holy Spirit living in you as happened at Pentecost. And Peter at Pentecost preached the most extraordinary sermon in which thousands became Christians. Verse 23, he says this, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God's set purpose. God's foreknowledge. He goes on to say, you killed him, you put him on the cross, but actually it was God's will, it was God's purpose that was being worked out. The very next chapter, chapter 3 of Acts and verse 18. Well, verse 17 for the sake of connection. Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. See that again? You acted, but God was working it out, because it was God's will being fulfilled. Chapter 4 and verse 28. This is a prayer. The believers, some had been arrested, and Peter and John, that is, had been arrested, and they were released, and the people gathered to pray, And as part of their prayer, they said, they did what your, that is God's, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The disciples very clearly understood, the early church understood, that not only was it that Jesus decided to go to the cross, but it was all part of God's plan and purpose. In many ways, it's a mystery that the cross was the way that God chose to deal with my sin and your sin, but he did choose that. It tells us very clearly in Scripture, not least in Hebrews 9 and verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We thought about that this morning as we took the wine. 
a symbol of the blood of Jesus shed for us. And without that shedding of blood, in the Old Testament, through all of the sacrifices, and now through Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. That was God's chosen method. We may wonder why, but it doesn't change the fact that it was. And so God worked his purposes out. So Jesus' perspective and God's perspective, if I may put it that way, the Father's perspective on the cross was that it was absolutely central. Absolutely key to all that God was and is working out. But I was asked a question in the notes that I was sent, which is, why did he die on a cross? And who killed him? And for that, we need to go back into John's Gospel, which is the uh, passage that Billy read for us earlier, chapter 10. Was it Judas who killed Jesus by having him arrested? Was it Caiaphas and the high priest who demanded that he be killed, murdered? Was it Pilate and the Roman soldiers who physically put him on the cross? Was it the crowd who shouted, away with him, we don't want this man to reign over us, only only, uh, Caesar is the word I was looking for, only Caesar is the king here, not this man. Was it the crowd? Was it you and me because of our sin? Was it our sin that held him there? Well, this passage that Billy read for us is very interesting, isn't it? In verse 10, which we didn't read with Billy, he says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus speaks about his fullness of life that he gives to people. And then the very next verse he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I've come that you might have fullness of life, and I do that by giving my life to you. says it again in verse 15. And although those statements are quite remarkable in themselves, actually the most remarkable is in verses 17 and 18. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. And this verse in particular, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. He chooses to lay down his life for you and me. He has the authority not only to lay his life down, but to take it up again. Did I hear a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Even my heart says hallelujah when I think about that, and I'm not like Mike, as you know. (laughs) He volunteers. He says, I have the authority to lay it down. Now, the fact that he had the authority didn't mean to say that he would. But he did. He laid down his life that you and I might know fullness of life. He chooses. He volunteers. And in all of that, he's with one accord with his father. Incidentally mentioned, the father is mentioned four times in those few verses that Billy read to us. In all of that, he's of one accord with his Father. God the Father, God the Son, working out his purposes through the cross. Jesus 
willingly giving himself for us. Paul says much the same thing in Galatians 2 verse 20 when he says, The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the same word that Jesus uses here in the original about laying down. He gave himself for me. It was his choice, his decision, his will. With all the authority that he had to do just that. So why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, actually, the next few weeks are going to unpack that rather more than I will this morning. But in essence, it's what Mike reminded us of earlier. When he was sharing about what Jesus had done on the cross. And you and I, if we're Christians here this morning, we at least have a smidgen of understanding. Probably about that much in the scheme of things (laughs) of why he did it. But in essence, he died so that you and I might live fully. Not just a full physical life, but live spiritually live in eternal relationship with God the Father, have our sins forgiven. And uh, that ought to rejoice our hearts. This table should rejoice our hearts every time we come to it. If it doesn't, ask yourself, why doesn't it rejoice my heart that Jesus did that for me? But he did die to deal with your sin and mine. But the second question was, who killed him? Who killed him? Was it Judas or Pilate, the Roman soldiers, Caiaphas, the crowd, you and me because of our sin? Octavius Wilson, great name that, isn't it? Octavius. I don't know any Octaviuses, but... Octavius Winslow said this, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 2? This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. And... uh, My last quote from John Stott as I come to a conclusion is this. He says this, and I found this very helpful. And kind of in my head I knew it, but this kind of sank it into my heart, and that was a good thing. It's essential to keep together these two complementary ways of looking at the cross that Peter refers to there, that it was men who put him on the cross, but it was God's will. On the human level, Judas gave him up to the priests who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers, who crucified him. But on the divine level, the Father gave him up, and he gave himself up to die for us. So actually it was my sin that held him there. But only because it was God's will and purpose that that's how he dealt with my sin, with your sin. In uh, 
in Stott's book, he um, tells uh, a story, at least he quotes a story, <coughs> from um, a little playlet called The Long Silence. I, I, I may have read this before, and forgive me if you've heard it before, but I'm going to conclude with this, and then we'll have a hymn together. It's just a short little playlet. Let me read it to you. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a black boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer? She murmured, wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he or she had suffered the most. A Jew, a black person, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. And in the center of the plain they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last... Let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly all realized that God had already served his sentence. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you at the end of our time together, we who would want, as it were, to sit in silence for a moment, pondering afresh the extraordinary nature of our salvation. One for us because Jesus 
laid down his life for us. And in the quietness of these moments, we offer you the worship of our hearts. We say thank you, Lord Jesus, that your death gave us, gives us life in all its fullness. Grant that we might live lives that reflect that, that the words we speak and the people that we are might speak of Jesus and his extraordinary love for us, that our lives might be lived in worship and adoration and in the power of your Holy Spirit. We bring you thanks, Lord Jesus, in your precious and lovely name. Amen. Amen. Got a